0: May I speak in the words of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And may your word, Lord, be illuminating our paths today. Would you refresh us and remind us of the truth of the gospel. And would you set our feet on a solid path with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Down through the ages in the Christian church, there have always been people absolutely happy to chuck away wonderful parts of the good news of Jesus because they've got hold of another part. And the part they've got hold of they think is so special (laughs) that they neglect or throw away the other parts of the gospel. One of the things that Paul's trying to tackle in this passage is to tackle those who have thrown away one of the most important things of the gospel. In fact, I think he is arguing the most important thing of the gospel, namely the resurrection from the dead, uh, for, the, for those who think that what we have now is all we have to live for. And this is how his argument goes. as us unpick it uh, verse by verse. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how come some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There are people in Corinth saying, this is all there is to life. There's nothing more. Now, you might want to think about that in our context for yourself people that you've encountered who say, it's just this, I am just an overgrown amoeba. I've evolved to a 21st century man or woman, um, but essentially when I die, I just go back into the ground and my molecules may form another amoeba that may evolve into something wonderful over millennia. Uh, and that's all there is to my life, I am just that. I'm the arbitrary result of an arbitrary process not handled by anyone, I just am. There are people like that, aren't there? But they're actually, despite years of quite militant secular atheism, statistics show that those who um, are absolute atheists have stayed at 8% of our population, and that hasn't particularly grown. What's grown in our context, in our age, is the, um, the what is called the none of the aboves on the census, the people who can't subscribe to any religious philosophy at all and tick none. For for those, for the majority now of our population, very unsure about what happens next. And within church life, of course, if you did a survey of people who attend church, what do you think happens after death? You'll find a whole mix of different responses. I was preaching at a funeral not long ago, and someone came up to me and said, I absolutely agree with everything you just said, vicar. Didn't use the word vicar, but uh, it was like that. Um, you're absolutely right, there's more than just this life. In my last life, I was a, whatever, a caterpillar or um, a crusader or something like that. And of course, I'd said nothing of the sort, but what she'd heard was that life goes on, and therefore it must fit into a reincarnation cycle where you keep coming back as some other Creature, That's not what this passage is arguing for either. But there's lots of confusion, isn't there? Even among those who have heard God's word preached. And the people in Corinth had heard God's word preached, and some of them said, there's no resurrection of the dead. At the end of the verses that we've got, um, the function of that, uh, that belief is spelled out in verses 32 to 34. People who aren't sure that there's anything next will take up the proverb, um, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And he says at the end, bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. In other words, when you don't believe that there's something coming next, you tend to just focus all your energy into now and what they call hedonism, which is sucking up as much so-called pleasure out of the moment as you can. Now, hedonism is an interesting thing, isn't it? I was uh, watching a little video um, earlier this morning about um, Bob Marley. Do you know Bob Marley, the great um, musician, died many years ago in his mid-30s. He was a reggae artist. And he'd grown up in uh, Jamaica, the son of a black woman and a, a white man, and had had... Uh, really an upbringing on the streets very very poor upbringing but his music began to set him free and one of the things that he said is um, if you're always living for yourself your life will add up to nothing it's only when you live for others that your life begins to mean something it's only when you live for someone else beyond yourself that your life begins to mean something I thought that was very profound at least a sense of um sort of bursting the bubble of hedonism that if I just live for me 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 and will that work out well for me well many of our novelists and film writers write about that don't they and someone just pursuing pleasure pursuing happiness as they understand it let's get as many great experiences as we can in this life now and almost invariably those heroes become the anti-heroes of their story and the bubble bursts Solomon was the great one in the Bible, had everything at his disposal, built houses, built palaces, built a temple, had as many different partners and and wives as he could imagine having, had no limit to his riches, and he ends up miserable, saying everything is meaningless, the chasing after a wind. It's only when we begin to live for something beyond ourselves that true meaning, true hedonism can happen. And Paul's saying here, look, if you don't believe that there's a resurrection from the dead, if you focus all your life into now, if you focus your life on hedonistic pursuits in the now, you're in trouble straight away. And because if you think about it, verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Jesus Christ can't have been raised. And he says, if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Now, This is a big thing to say, isn't it? He's saying that there is a facet of the gospel of Christianity that if you get rid of this one thing, everything else is useless. You know, Jesus said things that could go down as good teaching, you know, love one another, um, treat others as you'd like to be treated yourself. But if you get rid of the fact that he died and rose again, the whole edifice crumbles. It's just words. There's no power behind it. And he's saying... Our preaching is useless. Your faith is then useless. Um, And the people who have told you about Jesus are false witness because we've testified about God that he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. If he didn't raise Jesus from the dead, then you're right. The dead aren't aren't raised. And if the dead aren't raised, then Christ isn't raised also. But if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are, this is the key thing, still in your sins. Still in your sins. There's something about the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that achieves a key and vital thing. What is it? That you do not have to stay dead in your sins. What's the result of being dead in your sins or still in your sins? Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep are in Christ are lost. If only for this life where we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. Lostness is the result of being still in your sins and just an asleepness. Now, in our 21st century age, an eternal gospel is a harder one to market than it was a few hundred years ago. And there's a very significant reason for that. Now, we celebrated the 70th anniversary of it yesterday, National Health Service and medical advances. Nowadays, we are much less likely to die and have people around us die at a young age. So for many people, the whole idea of death and eternity doesn't really register with them. So if you go around preaching, as Paul is preaching, uh, in a resurrection, a lot of people are like, so what? I'm 20. I'm not going to die for another 79 years, however long they think they're going to live for. It doesn't have the cash value that it did when you were growing up in a family of 10 children and four of them may pass away before the age of 12, as would have been the expected mortality rate. And when your overall life expectancy, if wars and famines may have been 40 or 50 or 60. Nowadays, three score years and 10 looks like the beginning rather than the ending. And so people have gradually readjusted the gospel <laughs> into talking about a life worth living now. The focus of the gospel is, what benefit does it give me now? And Paul has an answer to that. And in verse 19, he says it like this. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Why does he say that? Because surely there's lots of things in the gospel of Jesus which mean that this life can get abundantly better, can't it? You know, that peace, that joy, that forgiveness, that freedom, being adopted into a family, being given a life on purpose, a reason for living, an identity. These are all reasons why you might say, it's so much better to be a Christian now than before I became a Christian. But the reality is, if you do Christianity the way that Paul did it, and the way that Jesus did it, It's going to cost you in this life. Christianity, according to Paul and according to Jesus, isn't a prop to make your life a bit better now, a life worth living now. It's a radical turning around of your priorities that only makes sense if you are, in fact, resurrected from the dead in the end. Why? Because this world comes under a certain kingship there is a kingdom in this world and there is also a kingdom in heaven and in verse 24 he begins to talk about this he says the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to god the father after he has destroyed all dominion authority and power we live in a world where there is dominion authority and power but also a world where jesus is now coming bringing his kingdom authority dominion and power And the two are in sharp and difficult contest between each other. On the one hand, the kingdom of lightness is growing ever since Jesus's day. But on the other hand, the kingdom of darkness, although ultimately defeated at the cross of Jesus and his resurrection, is still kicking and shouting and making a mess of things around us. And we live in an overlap between those two. And it's a Painful tussle because the end hasn't yet come. The reconciliation hasn't yet come. The fullness of Jesus' kingdom hasn't yet come. You're living at peace. You're loving your neighbor. You're turning the other cheek. You're letting the one who slaps you slap you again. You're giving your coat over. And there are people still living in this kingdom who will take advantage of that. Or you're sharing the good news of Jesus. You're saying, There is another way to live. There is a coming king. Repent. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And over here they're going, you what? That's crazy. I'm living for now. For me, I'm not harming anyone. I'm not doing anything to harm anyone around me. This is me over here. How dare you tell me that I need to change my mind? Or worse, still repent. Or warn me that there may be a coming judgment. How dare you tell me that? And so although in this life we have found Jesus and hope and peace and joy and forgiveness and purpose and a life worth living, we are still in massive conflict zone between these two kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom will win, but the kingdom in this world is alive and kicking. And of course, in our context in Britain today, much of this, we are spared the immediacy of pain from. We get the cold shoulder, perhaps. We get the slight put-downs, perhaps, for our faith. We get the family members maybe pushing Ooh. us away, perhaps, for our faith. We might not get any of that at all. But if you go to parts of uh, this world today, like a place I won't mention on, on, online that Nicola and I are planning to go to uh, later this year, You can be beaten up for faith in Jesus. You can be raped for faith in Jesus. You can be murdered for faith in Jesus. Is that a life worth living now? It's not on my bucket list of things I want to achieve before I'm 50 or 60. Jesus Christ doesn't come to give us the best bucket list fulfillment in this life now. He said, in this life, you may have trouble, you may have difficulty, but take heart, you're in this life, in this world, and I have overcome the world. And my kingdom's going to last forever. So if all you're looking forward to is this life now, and yet you're living with the tension of being in this one too, you're losing out. You might as well go all hog in with this world. Do an Ebenezer Scrooge. Hoard up your money. Look out for number one. Live for yourself. Go all in. Don't wimp out and put one foot in both camps. Just go all in. If it's just about this life. Live for yourself. Hoard your finances. Grab and be a hammer, not a nail. But if, verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, if he is the first fruit of those fallen asleep, if, since death had come through one man, Adam, and the resurrections come through Jesus, if in Adam all dies and in Christ will all be made alive, if all these things, then we get to that glorious verse in 24, where the end will come, when Jesus will hand over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, he will then reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy he will put under his feet is death. He has put everything under his feet. When it says everything's been put under him, he goes on and in a sort of parenthesis. It's clear this doesn't include God himself who put everything under Christ. When we were done this, then the son himself made subject to him who's put everything under him so that God may be all in all. That's just simply just saying God is sort of super boss, And Jesus the Son is also God but willingly submits himself under God's plan. The key thing to pick out of this is that he is going to destroy dominion, authority, and power. He's going to reign over everything and he is going to reign over death which he will destroy. Why? Because he's been resurrected. Do you see how Christian faith sold as simply a life worth living now can only be sold in a context of cushy comfort (laughs) and not in the context of the Corinthians who are likely to be expected to give their lives for this gospel. Cushy comfort with Christ on a carpet in a um, Californian dream world (laughs) is not worth dying for. The resurrection, for all people who trust in him, is a vision, a dream worth giving everything for. Because death is that enemy that levels everyone one day. Every king who ever lived has died. Every emperor who ever lived has died. Every great poet and prophet and pauper and peasant has died. We're all level on that day. It's the same enemy. doesn't matter how big your army is. doesn't matter how big your medical bill is. We all face that same enemy at the end. Is there an answer to this enemy? Amen, yes, there is through Jesus Christ because he has risen from the dead and so too, therefore, can you if you put your trust in him. Christianity is not about a cuddle on the carpet in California. It's not about a cushy life. It's not about a nice feeling and emotion now to help you through your day like caffeine could. It's a radical answer to a radical problem that you face death in your sins unless you repent and are forgiven. It is an essential answer right at the center of who we are. Christianity is not something like air conditioning in a car, it's the whole car, it's the engine, it's the motor, it's the steering wheel, it's the wheels. It is the thing that makes sense of history. Jesus dying and rising again, is it? There's no greater revelation you can have. If you can get your head around the fact that that man was God, that he died after just 33 years of living and rose again, and that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, then nothing is ever the same again. It's all you need to know. It's the heart of the gospel. It is crucial. He's risen. And so too, therefore, can you be. And he goes on in verses 29 uh, and 30, just to say that this practice they had of uh, baptizing people for the dead uh, was just, You know, why bother with your religious practices, effectively, is what he's saying, if there's no point to them. And more significantly, in verse 30, he says, why do I risk my life if this gospel is just air conditioning now? And he says, instead, though, guys, I die every day. I fight wild beasts in Ephesus. I give myself to this message. Because it's what you need, it's what Corinth needs, it's what Ephesus needs, it's what Rome needs, it's what London needs, it's what Parliament needs, it's what our school system needs, it's what our nursing homes need, it's what our hospitals need, it's what our people need around us, our friends and family, to know that the ultimate enemy has already been defeated because of the resurrected king. And we don't have to be scared anymore. And he's coming back. And although you live in these two kingdoms right now, one day there's only going to be one kingdom. And that kingdom's already got a name to it. The kingdom of our God, the Father, which Christ himself will present to him. And which you, if you trust in him as your saviour, Gain membership of in that very moment when you turn to him and say, thank you so much for dying for me. I'm so sorry I stayed away for so long. Please would you welcome me When you say thank you, sorry, please, you become a member of the kingdom that never, never ends, never fades, never perishes, never spoils. It's wonderful. So don't be misled. Don't live just for this life. Don't get caught out by bad company. Stop sinning and come to your senses because there is a resurrection day coming and it's coming soon. And make sure you're on the right side of eternal history when that day comes round. May God bless his word to us today. Amen.